Chapter 10 of Hints to Pilgrims. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hints to Pilgrims by Charles Stephen Brooks. Chapter 10 On Finding a Plot. A young author has confessed to me that lately, in despair of hitting on a plot, he locked himself in his room after breakfast, with an oath that he would not leave it until something was contrived and underway. He did put an apple and sandwich prudently at the back of his desk, but these, he swore, like the locusts and wild honey in the wilderness, should last him through his struggle. By a happy afterthought, he took with him into retirement a volume of De Maupassant. Perhaps, he considered, if his own invention lagged and the hour grew late, he might shift its characters into new positions. Rather than starve till dawn, he could dress a courtesan in honest cloth, or tease a happy wife from her household in the text to a mad elopement. Or, by jiggling all the plots together, like the bits of glass in a kaleidoscope, the pieces might fall into strange and startling patterns. This is not altogether a new thought with him. While sucking at his pen in a former droth, he considered whether a novel might not be made by combining the characters of one story with the circumstance of another. Let us suppose, for example, that Carmen, before she got into that ugly affair with the Toreador, had settled down in Barchester beneath the towers. Would the shadow of the cloister, do you think, have cooled her southern blood? Would she have conformed to the decent gossip of the town? Or, on the contrary, does not a hot color always tint the colder mixture? Suppose that Carmen came to live just outside the cathedral close, and walked every morning with her gay parasol and her pretty swishing skirts past the bishop's window. We can fancy his pen hanging dully above his sermon, with his eyes on space for any wandering thought, as if the clouds, like treasure ships upon a sea, were freighted with riches for his use. The bishop is brooding on an address to the ladies' sewing guild. He must find a text for his instructive finger. It is a warm spring morning, and the daffodils are waving in the borders of the grass. A robin sings in the hedge, with an answer from its mate. There is wind in the treetops with lively invitation to adventure. But the bishop is bent to his sober task. Carmen picks her way demurely across the puddles in the direction of the vicarage. Her eyes turn modestly toward his window. Surely she does not see him at his desk. That dainty inch of scarlet stocking is quite by accident. It is the puddles and the wind frisking with her skirt. Eh, hey, dear me! The good man is merely human. He pushes up his spectacles for nearer sight. He draws aside the curtain. Dear me! Bless my soul! Who is the lady? Quite a foreign air. I don't remember her at our little gatherings for the heathen. A text is forgotten. The clouds are empty caravels. He calls to Betsy the housemaid for a fresh neckcloth and his gaiters. He has recalled a meeting with the vicar, and goes out, whistling softly, to disaster. Ah, alas! In my forgetfulness I have skimmed upon the actual plot. You have recalled already how La Signora Madeleine descended from the bishop's palace. Her beauty was a hard assault. Except for her crippled state, she might herself have toppled the bishop over. But she pales beside the dangerous Carmen. Suppose, for a better example, that the cheerful Mark Tapley, who always came out strong in adversity, were placed in a modern Russian novel. As the undaunted Taplovich, 
he would have shifted its gloom to a sunny ending. Fancy our own dear Pollyanna, the glad girl, adopted by an aunt in Crime and Punishment. Even Dostoevsky must have laid down his doleful pen to give her, at last, a happy wedding. Flower girls and angel food, even a shrill soprano behind the hired palms and a table of cut glass. Oliver Twist and Nancy, merely acquaintances in the original story, with a fresh hand at the plot might have gone on a bank holiday to Margate, and been blown off shore. Suppose that the whole excursion was wrecked on Treasure Island, and that everyone was drowned except Nancy, Oliver, and perhaps the trombone player of the ship's band, who had blown himself so full of wind for foxtrots on the upper deck that he couldn't sink. It is Robinson Crusoe, lodging as a handsome bachelor on the lonely island, observed the cunning of the plot, who battles with the waves and rescues Nancy. The movie rights alone of this are worth a fortune. And then Caruso, Oliver, Friday, and the trombone player stand a siege from John Silver and Bill Sykes, who are pirates, with Spanish doubloons in a hidden cove. And Caruso falls in love with Nancy. Here is a tense triangle. But youth goes to youth. Caruso's whiskers are only dyed their glossy black. The trombone player, by good luck, you see now why he was saved from the wreck, is discovered to be a retired clergyman, doubtless a Methodist. The happy knot is tied. And then... A sail! A sail! Oliver and Nancy settle down in a semi-detached near London, with oyster shells along the garden path and cattails in the umbrella jar. The story ends prettily under their plain tree at the rear, tea for three, with a trombone solo, and the faithful Friday and old Bill, reformed now, as gardener, clipping together the shrubs against the sunny wall. Was there a serpent in the garden at peaceful Cranford? Suppose that one of the gay rascals of Dumont, with tall boots and black mustachios, had got in when the tempting moon was up. Could the gentle ladies in their fragile guard of crinoline have withstood this French assault? Or Camille, perhaps, before she took her cough, settled at Bath, and entangled Mr. Pickwick in the pump-room. Do not a great hat and feather find their victim anywhere? Is not a silken ankle as potent at Bath as in Bohemia? Surely a touch of age and gout is no prevention against the general plague. Nor does a bald head tower above the softer passions. Camille's pretty nose is powdered for the onslaught. She has arranged her laces in dangerous hazard to the eye. And now the bold hussy undeniably winks at Mr. Pickwick over her pint of kilobeet. She drops her fan with usual consequence. A nod. A smile. A word. At the assembly, Marco's sudden progress and the triumphant end, they sit together in the shadows of the balcony. My dear, says Mr. Pickwick, gazing tenderly through his glasses, my love, my own, will you, bless my soul, will you share my lodgings at Mrs. Bardell's in Groswell Street? Oh, we are mariners, all of us, coasting in dangerous waters. It is the siren's voice, her white beauty gleaming on the shoal. It is the moon that throws us on the rocks. And then a dozen dowagers breathe the gossip. Duchesses, frail with years, pop and burst with a pleasant secret. There is even greater commotion than at Mr. Pickwick's other disturbing affair with the middle-aged lady in the yellow curl papers. This previous affair, you may recall, he had left his watch by an oversight in the tap-room, and he went down to get it when the inn was dark. On the return he took a false direction at the landing and... Being misled by the row of boots along the hall, he entered the wrong room. 
He was in his nightcap in bed when, peering through the curtains, he saw the aforesaid lady brushing her back hair. A duel was narrowly averted when this startling scandal came to the ears of the lady's lover, Mr. Peter Magnus. Camille, I think, could have kept this sharper scandal to herself. At most, with a prudent finger to her lips, she would have whispered the intrigue harmlessly behind her fan and set herself to snare a duke. I like to think also of the incongruity of throwing Rollo, Rollo the Perfect, the Bayard of the Nursery, for example, in our suffering childhood, Rollo grown up, of course, and without his aseptic Uncle George, into the gay scandal, let us say, of the Queen's Necklace. Perhaps it is forgotten how he and his little sister Jane went to the bullfight in Rome on Sunday morning by mistake. They were looking for the Presbyterian Church, and hand in hand they followed the crowd. It is needless to remind you how Uncle George was vexed. Rollo was a prig. He loved his Sunday school and his hour of piano practice. He brushed his hair and washed his face without compulsion. He even got in behind his ears. He went to bed cheerfully upon a hint. Thirty years ago, I was so pestered, if I could have met Rollo in the flesh, I would have lured him to the alleyway behind our barn and pushed him into the manure pit. In the crisp vernacular of our street, I would have punched the everlasting tar out of him. It was circumstance that held the bishop and Rollo down. Isn't Cinderella just a common story of the sordid realism until the fairy godmother appears? Except for the pumpkin and a very small foot, she would have married the butcher's boy and been snubbed by her sisters to the end. It was only luck that it was a prince who awakened the sleeping beauty. The plumber's assistant might have stumbled by. What was Aladdin without his uncle, the magician? Do princesses still sleep exposed to a golden kiss? Are there lamps for rubbing, discarded now in attics? Sinbad, with a steady wife, would have stayed at home and become an alderman. Romeo might have married a Montague and lived happily ever after. It was but chance that Titania awakened in the ass's company. Chance that Viola was cast on the coast of Valeria and found her lover. Any of these plots could have been altered by jogging the author's elbow. A bit of indigestion wrecks the crimson shallop. Comedy or tragedy is but the falling of the dice. By the flip of a coin comes the poisoned goblet or the princess. But my young author's experiment with de Maupassant was not successful. He tells me that hunger caught him in the middle of the afternoon, and that he went forth for a cup of malted milk, which is his weakness. His head was as empty as his stomach. And yet there are many novels written, and even published, and most of them seem to have what pass for plots. Bipeds, undeniably, are set up with some likeness to humanity. They talk from page to page without any squeak or bellows. They live in lodgings and make acquaintance across the air shaft. They wrestle with villains. They fall in love. They starve and then grow famous. And at last in all good books, journeys end in lovers' meeting. It is as easy as lying. Only a plot is needed. And may not anyone set up the puppets? Rich man, poor man, beggarman, thief? You have only to say, eeny meeny, down the list, and trot out a brunette or a blonde. There is a broadcloth in the tiring box, and swords and velvet, and there is also patched wool and shiny elbows. Your lady may sigh her soul to the Grecian tents, or watch for honest Tom on his motorcycle. On Venetian balcony and village stoop, the stars show alike for lovers, and everywhere there are friendly shadows in the night. Like a master of marionettes, we may pull the puppets by their strings. It is such an easy matter. 
if once a plot is given, to lift a beggar or to overthrow a rascal. A virtuous puppet can be hoisted to a tinsel castle. A twitching of the thumb upsets the wicked king. Rollo is pitched to his knees before a scheming beauty. And would it not be fun to dangle before the bishop, that little Carmen figure with her daring lace and scarlet stockings, or to swing the bold Camille by the strings into Mr. Pickwick's arms as the curtain falls? Was it not Hawthorne who died leaving a notebook full of plots? And Walter Scott, when that loyal, harassed hand of his was shriveled into death, must have had by him a hundred hints for projected books. One author, I forget who he was, bequeathed to another author, the name has escaped me, a memorandum of characters and events. At any author's death there must be a precious salvage. Among the surviving papers there sits at least one dusty heroine waiting for a lover. Here are notes for the Duchess's elopement. Here is a sketch how the deacon proved to be a villain. As old ladies put by scraps of silk for a crazy quilt, shall not an author, also, treasure in his desk shreds of character and odds and ends to make a plot? Now the truth is, I suspect, that the actual plot has little to do with the merits of a great many of the best books. It is only the bucket that fetches up the water from the well. It is the string which holds the shining beads. Who really cares whether Tom Jones married Sophia? And what does it matter whether Falstaff died in bed or in his boots, or whether Uncle Toby married the widow? It is the mirth and casual adventure by the way that holds our interest. Some of the best authors, indeed, have not given a thought to their plots until it is time to wind up the volume. When Dickens sent the Pickwick Club upon its travels, certainly he was not concerned whether Tracy Tupman found a wife. He had not given a thought to Sam's romance with the pretty housemaid at Mr. Nupkins. The elder Mrs. Weller's fatal cough was clearly a happy afterthought. Thackeray, at the start, could hardly have foreseen Esmond's marriage. When he wrote the early chapters of Vanity Fair, he had not traced Becky to her shabby garret of the elephant at Pumpernickel. Dumas, I have no doubt, wrote from page to page, careless of the end. Doubtless he marked Milady for a bad end, but was unconcerned whether it would be a cough or noose. Victor Hugo did no more than follow a trail across the mountains of his invention, content with the kingdoms of each new turning. In these older and more deliberate books, if a young lady smiled upon the hero, it was not already schemed whether they would be lovers, with the very manner of his proposal already set. The glittering moon was not as yet bespoken for the night. My dear young lady, this older author thinks, you have certainly very pretty eyes, and I like the way that lock of brown hair rests against your ear. But I am not at all sure that I shall let you marry my hero. Please sit around for a dozen chapters while I observe you. I must see you in tweed as well as silk. Perhaps you have an ugly habit of whining. Or, safe in a married state, you might wear a mob cap in to breakfast. I'll send my hero up to London for his fling. There is an actress I must have him meet. I'll let him frolic through the winter. On his return, he may choose between you. My dear madam, another of these older authors meditates, how can I judge you on a first acquaintance? Certainly you talk loosely for an honest wife. It is too soon, as yet, to know how far your flirtation leads. I must observe you with Mr. Flopling in the garden after dinner. If, later, I grow dull and my readers nod, your elopement will come handy. Nor was a lady novelist of the older school less deliberate. When a bold adventurer appears, she holds her heroine to the rearward of her affection. 
I'll make no decision yet for Lady Emily, she thinks. This gay fellow may have a wife somewhere. His smooth manner with the ladies comes with practice. It is soon enough if I decide upon their affair in my second volume. Perhaps, after all, the captain may prove to be the better man. And yet this spacious method requires an ample genius. A smaller writer must take a map and put his figure beforehand on his destination. When a hero fares forth singing in the dawn, the author must know at once his snug tavern for the night. The hazard of the morning has been matched already with a peaceful twilight. The seeds of time are planted, the very harvest counted when the furrows made. My heart goes out to that young author who sits locked in his study, munching his barren apple. He must perfect his scenario before he starts. How easy would be his task if only he could just begin, once upon a time, and follow his careless contrivance. I know a teacher who has a full-length novel unpublished and concealed. Sometimes, I fancy, at midnight, when his Latin themes are marked, he draws forth its precious pages. He alters and smooths his sentences while the household sleeps. And even in his classroom, as he listens to the droning of a conjugation, he leaps to horse. Little do his students suspect, as they stutter with their verbs, that with their teacher, heedless of convention, rides the dark lady of his swift adventure. I look with great awe on an acquaintance who averages more than one story a week and publishes them in a periodical called Frisky Stories. He shifts for variety among as many as five or six pen names. And I marvel at a friend who once wrote a story a day for a newspaper syndicate. But his case was pathetic. When I saw him last, he was sitting on a log in the North Forest, gloomily estimating how many of his wretched stories would cover the wood pulp of the state. His health was threatened. He was resting from the toil of dropping buckets into empty wells and growing old and drawing nothing up. From all this, it must appear that the real difficulty is finding a sufficient plot. The start of a plot is easy, but it is hard to carry it on and end it. I myself, on any vacant morning, could get a hero tied hand and foot inside a cab, but then I would not know where to drive him. I have thought, in an enthusiastic moment, that he might be lowered down a manhole through the bottom of the cab. This is an unprecedented villainy, and I have gone so far as to select a lonely manhole in Gramercy Park round the corner from the Players Club. But I am lost how my hero could be rescued. Covered with muck, I could hardly hope that his lady would go running to his arms. I have also a pretty pencil for a fight in the ancient style with swords upon a stairway. But what then? And what shall I do with the gallant Percival de Vere after he has slid down the rope from his beetling dungeon tower? As for ladies, I could dress up the pretty creatures, but would they move or speak upon my bidding? No one would more gladly throw a lady and gentleman on a desert island. At a pinch I flatter myself I could draw a roaring lion. But in what circumstance should the hungry cannibals appear? These questions must tax a novelist heavily. Or might I not, for copy, strip the front from that building opposite? The whole of the fronted, shaven sheer, the inside gaped, exposed to-day, right and wrong and common and queer, bare as the palm of your hand it lay. Every room contains a story, that chair, the stove, the very tub for washing holds its secrets, the stairs echo with the tread of a dozen lives, and in every crowd upon the street I could cast a stone and find a hero. There is a seamstress somewhere, a locksmith, a fellow with a shovel. I need but the genius to pluck out the heart of their mystery." 
the rumble of the subway is the friction of lives that rub together. The very roar of cities is the meshing of our human gear. I dream of this world I might create. In a romantic mood, a castle lifts its towers into the blue dome of heaven. I issue in spirit with Jeanne d'Arc from the gate of Orleans, and I play the tragedy with changing scene until the fires of Rouen have fallen into ashes. I sail the seas with Raleigh. I scheme with the humped back Richard, out of the north, with wind and sunlight, my hero comes singing to his adventures. It would be glorious fun to create a world, to paint a valley in autumn colors and set up a village at the crossroads. Housewives chatter at their wash lines. Wheels rattle on the wooden bridge. Old men doze on the grocery bench. And now let's throw the plot, at a hazard, round the lovely Susan, the grocer's clerk, for her lover we select a young garage man, the jest of the village, who tinkers at an improvement of a carburetor. The owner of a thousand acres on the hill shall be our villain, a wastrel and a gambler. Now there is a mortgage on his acres. He is pressed for payment. He steals the garage man's blueprints. And now it is night. Susan dearly loves a movie. The Orpheum is eight miles off. Painted cubits, angels with trumpets. A villain, an eight-sword roundabout, Susan, the movie, the roundabout again, a lonely road, just a kiss, my pretty girl, help, help, aha, aha, foiled, the garage man, you cur, you hound, take that, and that, Susan, the garage man, the blueprints, name the happy day, oh joy, oh bliss. It would be fun to model these little worlds and set them up to cool. Is it any wonder that there are a million stars across the night? God himself enjoyed the vast creation of his worlds. It was the evening and the morning of the sixth day when he set his puppets moving in their stupendous comedy. End of chapter 10 Recording by Todd